Greetings, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. Happy to deliver the word this morning from Ezra 2. You hear these background passages, and what you hear in Jeremiah is before, and what you hear in Ezra is after this morning. I want you to hear that clearly. So I'm going to ask that you turn to Ezra 2 uh, and be ready, because we'll read our passage for today. As we begin, though, I heard an interesting story or recollection of Walt Disney recently um, that someone who knew him well uh, was recounting uh, on the day when Disney World opened, Walt Disney had passed away by that point uh, before Disney World, his grand uh, expansion of what Disneyland was, uh, opened up. And somebody standing next to this friend of Disney said, well, is, don't you think it's sad that Walt couldn't be here to see it? And the friend looked back and said, Walt did see it. That's why it's here. And it's an interesting thought. I think that that you have that same sort of thing going on in the book of Ezra with the people returning to the land they'd been exiled from. They're standing in the ruins, but they can see what God is doing and what God has called them to clearly uh, through the brokenness that is there and the repair that needs to go on. But what they exemplify in that is important. Um, There are all kinds of themes that come out of the book of Ezra. Today we see trust as one of those primary themes, trust in Yahweh, and that trust is greater than fear today. You start to see that emerge in a very pronounced way. And that trust is exhibited uh, by action. It's exhibited by generosity. It's exhibited by that action which demonstrates that they're becoming right with God and that that's not in the forms of worship that they take, but in the faithfulness of their hearts towards God. You see that emerge today and uh, become a prominent theme in the book of Ezra. So let's go to Ezra 2. I'm going to read 68 through uh, 3, 6. And that will orient us to where we're going today. It reads, When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear the peoples around them, of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices." Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented their regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as, as, well as those brought as free, off, free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Stay open to Ezra chapter 2 there. Go back to chapter 2. And I want you to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1. Actually, in just glance, I'm not going to read through the names there if you're getting worried all of a sudden as you turn back to Ezra 2, 1. 
But I want to make a couple observations about the people who return back, and it does relate to some names in a moment, that we can, we can look at this and we can make something out of this and then understand uh, the text a little more fully. The first thing I want to point out about, if you look at the names on the list and you look at who's coming back, if you dig into those a little bit, you recognize that this first group of people who are coming back um, are people who are sort of first adopters. We'd call them in technology or something like that. These are the people who can see the vision of what God is doing. And they're going to take the risk to go back. It's probably the biggest wave of people that will go back uh, from the exile. And you can draw the conclusion that these people are serious about their relationship with God. This, this absolutely matters. It's the most important thing to them because they're about to embark on about an 800-mile journey on foot from Babylon or that region back to Jerusalem. They're serious about being faithful to God and returning to the land. That trip alone would take over 40 days. They're probably doing it at some pace uh, that would require that they can't probably take a lot of cattle and other things along with them. They're going to go and they're going to be faithful to building the temple. The second thing that we can determine actually comes from the list of names itself. If you look through the list of names, this wouldn't become apparent to us because we're reading it in English. Um, in Hebrew, the original language, I didn't realize this until I read it this week, but if you read down the list of names, you have people whose lives reflected the glory of God down to their very names in many cases. You see, the people were exiled for their rank unfaithfulness. Generation upon generation had been unfaithful to the Lord, and even though there had been people back in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem who had been faithful, the sort of generational rot was so deep that it was, everything was broken and falling apart, and there was no way that they could fix the problem themselves. Finally, God exiles them because of that, and they learn their lesson in exile. And you heard that in the Jeremiah passage this morning. They're digging their own cisterns, basically. They're trying to make their own thing up. They're unfaithful to God in all their ways. And yet, you can see in the list of names an increasing number of what are called Yah names. Yahweh is the name by which God is known. Uh, hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. It's short. They use Yah as a short, shortened version. And you can start looking through the list and you can start to see a lot of names that have an I-A-H or an A-H at the end that are Yah ending. In some way or another, they're pointing back to God. The very second name on the list, uh, Shephathiah in verse 4, Yahweh has judged. You can start to see more of these, and scholars point out that as you look at the people who start to return, you start to see in the second and third generation of people who are in exile an increasing number of names that reflect God's very name in them. That is to say, they have broken with their past syncretism. They've broken with their past of trying to be like the culture around them so much that they were indistinguishable from it. They worshipped other gods. They set up idols. They were pulled away. Now they're saying, no, we are faithful to God down to our very names. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And they come back with that mindset. And I would point out just a third passing point about this that we get introduced to the character Zerubbabel. The first half of Ezra has to do with Zerubbabel's leadership. The second half with Ezra's leadership. Zerubbabel is a Babylonian name. It's not uh, a Yahweh name, but he himself is a community leader taking people back in faithfulness. And I would just point out that even the, the wrong start can be redeemed. Even a name that doesn't uh, have that uh, down to the very core Put your trust in the Lord, and all of a sudden things can change. 
That doesn't mean Zerubbabel was wrong in the beginning. It just means that even if we have the wrong start, we can have the right ending in the Lord. Now let's dig into the text a little bit with that kind of background in mind. Let's go to Ezra 2, 68 and 69. We'll read that again because it says, When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, so they're coming back to the temple to build the temple, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. We began by talking about trust and trust in the Lord and that that's a very important thing uh, over the fears that people have. Here you have trust in action exhibited by generosity. That's a way that they're revealing their trust. The people gave generously despite great demands on them. As you can imagine, if you have to pick up and leave where you're the second, third, or even fourth generation of people who have been living in a foreign land where you have to walk with everything or pull it along somehow, if you move those 800 miles, you're probably leaving something behind. If you're going to move with any pace, you might be leaving more behind because certain things slow you down along the way. And when you arrive in the new land, there may be resources there, but they may not be yours to take. And you've probably had to consume some of your resources to get there. It's costly to move today as much as the ancient world. And it probably costs them even more to make that move. But when they get to the new land, it's the leaders that model giving up front. They give quite a quantity away towards the rebuilding of the house of the Lord, of the resources that they have left once they've moved. They model generosity and they knew their ability. Uh, To give you, it's hard to translate uh, money into today's currency, 61,000 derricks. A derrick might have been the equivalent, let's say a month's salary, roughly maybe a couple derricks would buy you an ox kind of thing. 5,000 minas of silver, uh, roughly a five-year salary for a mina is what I read this, this week. So this is no small amount of, of money and goods that they're giving in this. And so it, it begs the question of us if we consider that trust being exhibited in the generosity in this. I want to land on that theme of generosity for a moment. Have you ever defined what generosity looks like in concrete terms? You know, here it looks like 61,000 derricks. It looks like 5,000 minas and 100 priestly garments, among other things. Have you ever defined it? Sometimes we talk about it. We throw it out there. Hey, I want to be generous with X, Y, and Z. But have we really thought it through? Generosity uh, is really about a heart being in the right place, not about money being in the right hands. That's important to recognize. But if you're generous with something, you give because you believe. Or you don't give to get. You give because you believe, and you give without expectation of return. Another way to say it is love. That's what that would be. Um, I know some folks in town uh, who one of the things they do as an act of generosity uh, and blessing others is they both carry around, a husband and wife, they both carry around at least $50 in their wallet uh, so that when they encounter somebody, it doesn't even have to be a hard luck story, just somebody who's obviously having a rough day and needs a little help, 50 bucks. You know what? I can tell you're having a hard moment. People, they wouldn't even know. I can tell that this is a hard day for you. And I can tell that you need help. We've been blessed. Generosity. You see, they're not expecting anything in return. They gave because they believe. 
But furthermore, if you put it in concrete terms, you're driven to another, uh, I think, question. By the text itself, they gave according to their ability in verse 69. Have you considered if you know your ability to be generous? I was really reflecting on that this week. That's what we brought in the 2 Corinthians 9 passage, which I'd like to read the two verses of that again. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 where Paul's collecting for the giving to other churches, and he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's interesting that particular line in verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You should give what you've decided in your heart That's generosity in concrete terms as well. And for those who who I think really are all in, uh, it's not hard to make that definition in some ways. In fact, it's it's almost hard to to not withhold uh, giving or to withhold when you want to give. What has God called us to give? I think if you go with the Old Testament principle, some people would say the tithe, that sort of thing. Go online and look Bible and tithe, and you'll be totally confused at what what people think about the Bible and tithe. Uh, But I think the New Testament uh, uh, designation is found in Jesus Christ to give everything. And if we follow Jesus, then we're called to give all to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we give away everything we have and money and all that sort of thing. We have to be good stewards and take care of what God's given us. But generosity is going to look extravagant in that sense. Generosity is going to look like this. Frankly, they were modeling it for us. It's going to look extravagant. I know um, sometimes, though, we haven't calculated our ability. I recalculated ours because Stephanie's now working recently. um, And I, I wanted to make sure, hey, are we giving enough? Are we giving what we should give? If I'm part of God's people, if I'm one of the followers of Jesus then I need to know my ability and do that appropriately and give for the mission because I believe it. That's what they do. They believe what God has called them to and they give generously, not under compulsion. I want to point out one thing that sits behind that generosity that we see in the text as well. Ezra 3, chapter, or verse 3. It starts with this line, despite their fear of the peoples around them. They started building. They took what they had given and they started putting together the altar. And I would suggest that what sits behind generosity is found right there as well. That They had a God-sized hump and that tr- God-sized hope and that trumps human fear. Try and say that three times fast. They had a God-sized hope which trumped human fear. Despite the fear that they had, they gave. And they gave generously. They celebrated. They renewed their relationship with God in that moment. Even though they're coming back to a place where there are people who may not like them and wish them harm. You discover that later in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And that word for fear that's used there is used of other humans and animals of people who would wish harm on you, not the reverent fear of the Lord. 
That fear is real. That fear is around them. That fear, not just of other humans, would be around them, but the fear that they have now moved and expended a lot of resources and given to the house of the Lord. Now would they have enough to survive? All those fears are swirling around them. And we can ask the very same things when it comes to generosity. What fears pull us away from trusting God? I know one thing in our future that I'm excited about that that there can be a lot of fear that we should name uh, is that we're talking about being a partner church to a church plant here in Lincoln that will begin the process this fall. There's fear that comes with that. Who are we going to lose? How much money is going to go towards that church plant? We should think, who are we going to send? Who are our apostles? And how can we be generous to God's work? The people feared, but they didn't get pulled down because they had a hope that was bigger than that moment. And when we start to name the fear, we take the power away from it. And when we're generous and begin to give into the fear, then we can actually give through those fearful moments. It's still there, but we begin to recognize that the hope we have in God is bigger than any human fear we could have. Indeed, I would would suggest to you that when it comes to giving uh, and being generous, the same principle I would apply, apply to learning to pray applies to being generous and learning generosity. You can read all the books you want on how to pray. Useful. But you're never going to learn it until you actually do it. Same thing comes with generosity. You can read all you want and think all you want and calculate all you want. But until you start to practice it, you don't discover the reality and the blessing that's behind generosity. The same thing is true in both cases. See, when we turn and cultivate generosity towards God, we actually grow in trust of God. To quote Francis Chan from Crazy Love, he says, when people sacrifice their time or comfort or home, it is obvious that they trust in the promise of God. Indeed, that's what we see in Ezra. Let's go to verse 6, which is the end of our section today. It says, On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Now there's some of this that we can extend into next week's text, but let's start it this week. See, the charge that they had was to rebuild the temple. Rebuilding the temple was only going to be able to happen on the original site where the temple was prescribed to be, where God had called them to put it. And they began by setting up the altar. I mean, the temple had pretty much been destroyed when they were conquered by Babylon 70 years prior to that. And now they're standing on rubble, basically, as they set up this altar. And they had to be focused on the task at hand as they stand on the rubble. They had to trust God's future while they stood on the failures of the past. Their generosity, though, in this moment, fueled their hope in what God was doing. In the past, we heard from the Isaiah text or Jeremiah text this morning, in the past, they had relied on the temple as a substitute for faith. They had relied on, on their own uh, interests as a substitute for faith and idols. They had relied on doing the proper rites and rituals alone. 
instead of having a heart that was united with the heart of God in doing that? There was no need to be faithful to God and and be synced with God's desires. There's only a need to do the right rituals. But now that's been cut away. Now there's no temple. It's in ruins. Now they have to put together the altar and their trust is exhibited by their willingness to travel, to give, and to worship in that space that barely exists. It's not the space that matters. It's the right heart that matters. It's never been more exposed than it is at this point. And so we can ask a question when it comes to worship because right worship is a part of Ezra as well. What's the minimum standard required to be God's faithful people? What does it take to worship rightly? Do we need certain things? Do we need a building? Do we need certain instruments? Do we need a website? Do we need certain objects that can be before us? Is that what our worship is? Or is our worship something beyond those things? They couldn't put their faith in something other than God at that point. They had to put it in God. You see, all the things, all the super extra stuff had been cut away. And they're learning to put their hope in the Lord through their generosity. They're learning to have a vision for what God is going to do as they stand in the rubble and ruin of their own unfaithfulness. One more verse I want to bring in this morning is from 1 John 3, 16 and 17. As we think about God's generosity towards us. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. God's generosity towards us never stops. That's a good thing, isn't it? God's generosity towards us never stops. And and if we want to understand generosity, we should look at God's definition of it. Even in their unfaithfulness, God brings them back to the land and says, here's the direction, here's the instruction, put it together. In human unfaithfulness, God says, here's the plan for which I'm going to bring you back, and that's Jesus. Generosity is best defined by God and illustrated by God. And if your heart is tuned to God's heart, your ability to give will grow. If your hope is rightly directed, you're going to care less about the form of worship than the object of worship. But most importantly, we can learn about the generosity and how to live into those because God's generosity never ceases. It's demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. And if we follow Jesus, we're the generous ones. That's who we should be by default we'll be able to recognize and rightly worship God, giving generously to God's mission because we can see the vision of what God has before us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the fact that you play the long game with us, that you're, you're always looking for our best and you're patient with us when we're unfaithful. That when we have a desire to hold back what you've freely given us, that you gently nudge us forward if we'll only hear you and we'll give because we believe. Lord, help us believe. Help our unbelief today. 
Help us not believe that you are a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance. And that if Jesus Christ has modeled to us how we are supposed to operate as generous people, that we indeed would be generous people. Lord, help us love like you loved, give like you gave, and be united with you in heart and mind. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.